Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And we're going to look today at verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 out of 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll finish our, our study in 1 Peter uh, next week. What I'd like to do today is to uh, read the passage. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it from a New American Standard, then read it from uh, uh, Eugene Peterson's, the uh, uh, paraphrase, the message as well. Also, we had a conversation this week, uh, and I came in kind of in the middle of it, but we were just talking about different things and things that go on within the service. And we were talking about distractions within the service. And I, and I shared, last week I taught, the previous two weeks I came to church and just sat out where, where you sit, and made a lot of observations, uh, not intentionally, just as things were happening around me. And, and, and one of them, just how easy it is to distract the people around you. So I was in the uh, afternoon service, had a young man, I would guess he was around 10 or 11, got up four times during the message. And I presume went to the bathroom or have a smoke, one of the two. I don't know what he, I don't know what he was doing. Either way, I wanted to whack him in the head. Uh, and wondered where his mom or dad was to go up, down, up, down, up. That's eight times this kid walked in front of me. I had adults behind me who talked almost the entire time. Uh, I had a lady with a baby, and it was a wonderful baby who was about three rows in front of us. But I went to, it was a wonderful baby, so she'd hold it up. And the minute she did that, she distracted all five rows behind her. Uh, it, we're, we're, I would really encourage you to be sensitive to the people around you. I understand that people have to get up during service, but there's really no excuse to be talking back and forth uh, and be sensitive, uh, especially with children. Tyler and Haley uh, bring Braden and Yale, Braden's five, or seven, Yale's five, to the service on Sunday night, and they do well. They sit, they have their Bibles, they take notes, they can handle it. And if you have kids and students, uh, that's your call to make. Uh, oftentimes there's people who are with us maybe for the first time and not even aware that there's children's ministry or, or, or ministry for infants. But from, from birth through sixth grade, we have ministry available uh, for you and for you to use. So please be sent. It, it, and I will just tell you as a, as a dad, uh, you're going to get a lot more out of a message if you place your child in, in children's ministry than if you bring them in and you're worried about that. And so just be, be sensitive to that. Be sensitive to the, to the people around you. It's really interesting for me to now come on Sunday and, and to be out there and come to a staff meeting. I come with a little bit of a different sense of what's going on. So anyway, I just say that not by a way of chastisement, but by a way of information to you and kind of heads up. And to feel free. Uh, I, I know it's not the easiest thing to do. We try to do it, but it's awkward for ushers and stuff as well. But to, to be able to free, uh, uh, feel free to the people around you to share that. You'd love to help them find their way to children's ministries or whatever it might take, okay? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. So Peter says, I'm writing to the elders, plural, and I'm writing as a fellow elder. He's not putting himself above them. He's not pulling rank here. He's saying, I'm just one of you guys. And I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Now, to these elders, he writes, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, 
but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, when Jesus appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Young men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, let me read you one of the paraphrases and see if this doesn't kind of bring it to life a little bit, too. I have a special concern for you church leaders. I know what it's like to be a leader in on Christ's suffering as well as the coming glory. Here's my concern that you care for God's flock with all the diligence of a shepherd. Not because you have to, but because you want to please God. Not calculating what you're going to get out of it, but acting spontaneously. Not bossily telling others what to do, but tenderly showing them the way. When God, who's the best shepherd of all, comes out in the open with his rule, he'll see that you've done it right and commend you lavishly and you who are younger must always follow the, your leaders but all of you leaders and followers alike are to be down to earth with each other for God has had it with the proud but delights in just plain people so as you read it through it's very obvious that at least in verses one through four Peter's directing his comments toward the elders or the leaders in the church. And, and then in verse 5, though he separates this group called younger men, most of the scholars would agree that he's singling out a group as part of a whole group. So he's saying to the congregation, now, here's your responsibility. And, and I said after the first service, it, it's like he's saying in, the, in verses 1 through 4, you lead this way, and everybody's saying, amen, I could follow that guy. And then in verse 5, he's saying, you follow that way, and all the leaders are saying, it'd be a pleasure to lead a guy like that. He's, he's painting a picture here of, of the relationship between the elders and the congregation within the church. But what I want to do at the end of this is take a little bit of time and, and, and move this even beyond this elder congregation. And there's a key component in this that is at the core, I think, of every human relationship. So he says, first of all, I exhort you. It means to call alongside, in a general sense, to encourage or compel somebody in a certain direction. I, I exhort elders. There's, there's terms that are used kind of interchangeably in Scripture, elder, bishop, overseer, pastor. I encourage those who are elders, and that eldership is marked by spiritual maturity, as well as, I think he has in mind here, the, the office of elder as well. Now, he speaks, Peter does, and all of the New Testament speaks of elder in terms of plural, always in terms of plural, as it relates to the, to the position, as it relates to speaking of the group of leaders. They may talk of themselves individually, Peter may say, I, a fellow elder, singularly. But they talk about the term we would use as plurality of elders. And let me give you at least three reasons for this. It's very important. Now, number one is the plurality of elders helps protect the church against error. Now, the reality is in Redemption Church Gilbert and most of the Redemption Churches and, and probably most churches, even with boards of elders, there's one elder, in this case it's particularly me, that you're going to see most of the time. 
But that elder is not the one. It's not Tom's church. It, it, it's, not, it's not Jamie's church or Rick's church or Luke's church or Frank's church. The, the, the church is led by a, a group of elders, and, and one of the benefits to that is just kind of doctrinal checks and balances. One of the things we do at uh, Redemption Church is every week on Wednesday, the guys that will be teaching, not that week, but in 10 days, get together and work their way through the text. And it allows you to present different arguments, different positions, and oftentimes in, in, in those meetings, I'll sit and begin to take notes and go, this is way different than anything I would have seen. This is a different emphasis. I would have gone a different way and perhaps even been wrong in the way I taught that. So that's one of the huge benefits. Here's the second thing. The plurality of elders preserves and protects us against an imbalance. That when you put people together, though they'll have similarities, we talk a lot about fit about pastors and elders here. We need to fit. We want guys that are philosophically alike, but we certainly don't want eight guys just like me sitting in that room. But when you bring together a diverse group of people and you put them in that room as leaders, you get a sense of, of balance of the way God gifts. <clears throat> One of the, I think, big misconceptions and mistakes is when a church looks at their lead pastor or teaching pastor and expects that guy to be the leader and the administrator and the staffer and the organizer, that somehow this one person has all these gifts. That's not true. To get that person you need, you need that balance. You need that plurality of elders and, and gifts being used. And the third thing is it avoids the discontinuity of the church. If what you have is a guy, once that guy's gone, the church is in really serious trouble. In most instances, but not all, that guy does a terrible job of preparing his next guy. Oftentimes, after a period of uh, 20 or 25 years even, the church will almost begin to kind of rise up and say, we've had enough of this one guy. But a plurality of elders provides not with necessarily with a seamless transition, but with a good transition. This is my last Sunday teaching on a regular basis. We've had a major transition over the last two or three years. And one of the reasons it's had as little impact, I think, as it's had negatively is because of the balance of elders. It's not a guy leaving. It's a natural part of reemphasizing of the team. So, so Peter makes it, and, I, and it's just a passing note here, but it speaks, I think, to those of us who are pretty sensitive to this, that there's this plurality of elders he said, I'm, I'm one of you guys. No better, no, no worse, just one of you guys. I'm a, wit verse, verse, second part of verse 1, witness of the suffering of Christ. I'm a witness. I saw. And there were all sorts of things that, that Peter uh, could have mentioned at this point, but, but he doesn't mention I was a witness on the Mount of Transfiguration, or I was a witness of the life of Christ, or the miracles of Christ, teaching of Christ, even the, even the resurrection of Christ, I was a witness of the suffering of Christ's redemptive work. He points to a, a major part, the major part of Christ's work. And as you go back, look at Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2, and there it is over and over again, the suffering, the death of Christ. Now, tucked in here also with Christ's redemptive work is Christ's restoring work, especially in Peter's life. 
Wayne Grudem writes this, why does Peter recall this? Probably to demonstrate that restoration, even from grievous sin, is possible with Christ. And thus to encourage the elders uh, 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 in a humble willingness to be penitent for their sin, rather than be filled with hypocritical pride and unwillingness to even admit a wrongdoing. I, I don't know, total speculation. But when, when Peter began to reflect back on the suffering of Christ, what we think about is the arrest and the trial and the beating and the scourging and the crucifixion. And I would guess it would be impossible for Peter to reflect upon the suffering of Christ and not reflect upon his own failure at the same time. I would think it would be very difficult for him to think about the suffering of Christ and not think of himself saying, I never knew him, I never knew him, I never knew him, er, er, er. But with that, with that failure comes that redemption. Peter said, I'm, I'm totally aware of that. I'm a witness of that. I'm a partaker of the glory that's to be revealed. That's kind of a theme that we've seen through this book. We'll see it yet one more time when we get to verse 4. So we'll come back to it. He said, I want you to shepherd the flock of God. It, it could be stated, I want you to shepherd the, the sheep of God. When we talk about flock, R.C.H. Linsky writes this. Flock brings to mind all the shepherd imagery found in the scriptures. The sheep are gentle, defenseless, liable to stray, needing a shepherd, happy, peaceful under care, pitiful when lost and scattered, etc. This is God's flock that was bought at a great price. It is exceedingly precious in his sight. A great trust is placed in the hands of the human shepherds who are to pattern their life after God himself. He said, you are the shepherd of the sheep. Um, I don't, I'm terrible at this. When somebody will say, how long ago did you? I, unless there's a hard date associated with it, I can never remember it. But some time ago, not terribly long ago, we taught the 23rd Psalm. And I remember my first exposure to the 23rd Psalm in terms of studying it was in Larry Wright's Bible study. And he came in one day, and he was all frustrated. He'd been to a funeral, and they had taught the 23rd Psalm or read it. And that set him off like a rocket because the 23rd Psalm is not about dying. It's about living. It's about a shepherd and sheep. Now, I, I don't climb from Iowa, but I don't claim to have any sense of agriculture other than I like corn, okay, <laughs> and a watermelon kind of look. But, but we relied heavily when we taught the 23rd Psalm on, uh, on Philip Keller's book, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm. And, and here are just some comments. And just get the idea of sheep. Because he could have picked any animal. But the imagery is sheep and shepherd. For example, God has created most animals with an uncanny instinct to find their way home. If a sheep strays in unfamiliar territory, they become completely disoriented and cannot find their way back home. They spend most of their time eating and drinking, but if they're lost, they're almost helpless to find adequate food. They're a little bit perhaps like me and maybe like you, they're indiscriminate in what they eat. They eat healthy and poison. They'll overgraze. They're not, discrim they're not discriminating at all about the water that they drink. Uh, their wool secretes a large volume, volume of, of oily lanolin. 
So, so their wool is, like, is just like sticky paper to all of the things around it. And they're incapable of cleaning themselves or cleaning one another. And along comes the shepherd. And, and, and when they're lost, they're, they're lost. They're helpless. They're hopeless. They're defenseless. They'll stampede and run over one another. Along comes the shepherd, and the job of the shepherd is to protect and to feed and to calm. Uh, We said that at night they would bring the, the herds in, and they would have different pens. And during the day, they would even allow the herds to intermingle. And each shepherd would stand by his pen. It would be a rock area, maybe about two, two feet, three feet tall, with an opening. And the shepherd would stand there and call his sheep. And the sheep would know the shepherd's voice. And they would come to that shepherd. You get the imagery here. And into that pen they would go. And then the shepherd would lay and sleep in front of that opening so no predator could get in or no sheep could wander out. That's the kind of imagery that he's painting. And and these guys, as they heard this, would understand that completely. They would understand their role as shepherds. And and as the the people read it, they would understand, well, this this is what he's saying. This is who we are. Spiritually, we tend to wander. Like sheep, we've all wandered astray. And we need help and we need protection. He says that's the job in the church. That's the job of the elders, the bishops, the overseers, the pastors, the leaders. Shepherd the flock of God among you and and, and do it this way. Exercise oversight. So I want you to provide oversight to, to, to look upon. I want you to do that. You're going to do it by way, he says at the end of verse 3, as examples. But in between, he said, here's a little contrast. I don't want you to, to serve under compulsion. He said a, sh- a shepherd shouldn't be pressured into accepting this role. You do it voluntarily. You're awake. You're diligent. You're not lazy. You're motivated by love, not forced by some sort of faithfulness. You're passionate about it. You're not apathetic. You're not indifferent. He he says, secondly, not only are you not serving under compulsion voluntarily, it's according to the will of God. God's put you there. It's not for sordid gain. What he's saying is there there may always be, as money's involved, there may always be some sort of a temptation that money becomes the motivator. He said, don't let that be the case. Now, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that those who are leaders should not be paid. We know that from reading passages from, from Paul's epistles. But he's saying that's not the driving force. Acts chapter 20, verse 33, Paul said, as he's saying goodbye to these elders and farewell to the church at Ephesus, He he speaks autobiographically, reflecting over his time there. And he said, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourself know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything, I showed you that by hard work in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord himself. It's better to... To give than receive. So he's not saying people in a full-time position or as the elders lead shouldn't be compensated for. He's not saying that. He's saying, but the motive here is not sordid gain. He's saying this has not become the, the driving force in this. 
In 2 Peter, next book over, Paul, Peter's talking about false teachers. In 2 Peter 2, 3, he said, their greed will exploit you with false words. And, and, I, and I, we, we talk about this. Tyler and I have spent a lot of time talking about this in the last couple of weeks as, as there's been lots of conversations about what kind of money pastors are making at different places. Now, here's what we've always done here, and I will, I will tell you this. Open, we've always paid, and I'm, I'm, don't, I'm not proud of this, but we've always paid, I would say, at the low end of what market is for churches our size. Now, we've made some changes to try to improve that situation. But, but that's probably a reflection of me. When the church started, I didn't take a salary and, and haven't to this day. I've been provided the last few years a, a, a stipend, a, a housing allowance, but, but I didn't. And part of it is I didn't want these things confused, and I didn't want anybody to think somehow it was money that was driving that. But you have, you have, you have pastors around the country who are making an extraordinary amount of money, flying around on private jets, and I'm not saying, that, I, I, here you go, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that becomes very, very, very dangerous. I see it all the time when the market gets bad. When a market gets bad like this, it's amazing how many people God seems to be calling into ministry. God rarely calls people in a boom, it seems like. And he's saying, be careful here. Watch out for this. Uh, and let me be clear now, are guys willing, or should they be paid? And can they? Absolutely. But he said, that isn't the motive here. That's a byproduct. They have to eat. They have to live. And he said, here's the, the third thing I, I want you to do, verse 3, is you're not lording it over people. You're, you're not ruling in a domineering, dominant way. The idea here is, is, is forcing somebody to do something under military pressure, Political pressure, economic pressure, it's autocratic, it's oppressive, it's intimidating. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, uh, Jesus uh, calls the disciples to himself and he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you should be a servant. When, when you hear about the term servant leadership, I mean, that should be characterized by the picture of Christ. I'm in a study group, and we're reading a, a little book called Leading Like Jesus, and that's essentially, and I, when I saw the title and stuff, I thought, I gotta like this, but that's me. But it's essentially that thought process. It is that, what, and, and, and I gotta tell you, this, this has all sorts of challenges to it. It's not just in the church. It's at the marketplace. It's coaching like Christ, leading like Christ, leading from a, a position of strength, but leading in a, in a quiet way, not browbeating, not intimidating, not pulling out your card that says, I'm an elder. He said, I, and I will just tell you practically, if you're playing that card very often, you're in real trouble. At that point, you've lost all authority but what that card gives you, it seems like. Don't lord it over them. But prove to be an example. I remember, you know how you're reading through Scripture, or reading a passage, or you see something. Even now, it may not be the first time, but it's the time the lights went on. And I remember just reading through Paul's letters, and, and Paul kept saying, follow me, follow me, follow me. And I thought, wow, that's a big thing to say. 
Now, the sentence is, follow me as I follow Christ. And what Peter is saying to the elders, the pastors, the bishops, the overseers, he's saying, you should be able to say to the people, follow me, look at me. Not that I'm perfect, but look at my life. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. As Paul closes out his last letter that we have, it's been kind of retained to this day, 2 Timothy. He says, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. It's that same image, it's that one of the crown. And that, and that culture, the, the man who won the race didn't get a gold medal, but, but got a crown. The military leaders and heroes didn't get medals, but got a crown. In Corinth, if you won uh, one of the Corinthian games, you got a crown, and with it came three things. Here's the first one, mean even more after the first of the year. You didn't pay any taxes. Okay, You were tax exempt for the rest of your life. Number two, you were a hero. That's got to be kind of cool. I love uh, uh, football Saturday in, in terms of games and volume. Obviously, yesterday's the worst of them. But, but that's the game I love, a game I love to watch every year is Army-Navy. I love to watch all the pageantry. As somebody said yesterday, it's pretty cool. He said, this is the only game where the guys playing will be willing to die for the people watching. That's pretty cool. But after that comes the Heisman. I think it would be the cool, it would be so cool to be a Heisman Trophy winner. I have four years of eligibility yet left, but I don't think I'm going to win the Heisman. You're a Heisman Trophy winner for life. Yeah. So Sandy, we're just, we're bringing her along in college football, and she's liking Desmond Howard. You know, Desmond on Saturday morning, and Desmond gets better every day. He's getting pretty good. And I said, he won a Heisman Trophy. Wow. Heisman Trophy. Well, what you have to your crown that says everywhere you go, hero. So no taxes, hero. Here's the third thing. And your kids couldn't be drafted into the service to have to fight. That, that's a, those are big, that's a big deal. Paul makes the point, and Peter has it here, is you'll receive an unfading crown. Those are all crowns that fade away. That's our challenge. We're constantly looking at those things around us that seem so real and permanent, but they're all fading away. The last few weeks, the lesson in, on Sunday and Wednesday have, have kind of dovetailed. And, and this week, the last part of an uh, 11-part series on how to stay straight in a crooked world was to, was to renew ourselves day by day. So we went to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, 17, 18. Though the outer man is decaying, the inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Here's the key. Because I look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, because the things that are seen are temporal, the things that are unseen are eternal. And it's the same idea here. Is you can run in this race and you get a crown and that's a real, a Heisman Trophy is a real cool deal, but it's going to fade away. 
the outer man is decaying. In our bathroom, when you come into our bathroom, you come into our bathroom, to the left is a shower. Love our shower. It should be a little bit bigger maybe, but, but glass blocks in it. And then there's a bathtub, big bathtub. I've never, I don't think that in the whole time we've lived in it, it's ever been, I don't think anybody's ever taken a bath in it. I don't think. And, and, and then a vanity with a couple of sinks and then a closet with, with sliding doors. And the sliding doors are mirrors. So that when you get out of the shower, you look, it's, it's unavoidable. <laughs> and last Wednesday, knowing I was going to teach that, I just got out and started laughing as I looked in the mirror, trying to cover myself up for myself, which is stupid. Okay? <laughs> Though the outer man is decaying, the inner man's being renewed day by day. That, that, that's the reality, that I need to keep that. Hey, we come back to this again and again and again. And there is within there, really, this idea of a reward. He says in verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. That there's this moment. There is this eternal reward that's available, not just to shepherds, but to all of us. The scripture again and again calls us and, and helps us understand that there's an eternal, eternal reward. You know, there's that moment when I will receive, and not just here, well done, good and faithful servant, but there's every, whatever that is, is attached to that. And he said, that's a legitimate motivation to, to you and to me, to us. He said, I want you to shepherd in this way. Prove yourself by your examples. And the ultimate motivation in this is that Christ will one day reward you. Verse 5, now young men likewise. We've seen that word likewise before. It's a, it's a device that Peter uses to change focus. There's some continuity to what he's been talking about. He's been talking about elders, and he's now going to talk about congregation. There's a continuity but now he's changing focus. We've been talking about elders, and again, if you're here and you're going, boy, if that's the kind of elders I have, I can't wait to submit to them. But he's saying, likewise, now, let's turn this mirror the other way. And he says, young men. Is he saying, young men, you subject yourself to your elders, meaning young chronologically submit to old chronologically. And most scholars agree, no, that what he's doing here is, is continuing the same imagery. He's speaking of elders within the church, and he's singling young men out, not because they're a fixed group within the church, but most scholars believe he's singling out young men because they generally are the most aggressive, headstrong, arrogant group to deal with. He's saying everyone, but especially young men. I uh, am speaking right after the first of the year in a pastor's luncheon. And um, going back and forth, assignments wide open, but I think what I'm going to talk about is, is transition, passing the baton, raising up young men. And one of the points that, that I make in there, and there are a whole bunch of them, but one of them is that, that you have to be earnest about it or they're going to smell it real quickly. They're going to smell you're just going through the motions. But... but if you're going to deal with young men, you better realize that you're going to have to put up with a lot of stupid, arrogant stuff. That's part of what young is. You, you think you know everything and you know 
not much. Or you may know a lot from a book, but you don't know anything, anything else. I remember, it just popped into my mind, J.C. Watts uh, was a quarterback at Oklahoma and then a congressman. And uh, his, his father was retiring, and I, I, can't, I can't remember what he, I don't know if he worked on a railroad, I can't remember. And uh, he was 70, I think. And J.C. said, what are you going to do? And he said, I, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to go to college. And he said, go to, go to college? What for? He said, I want to go in there and see what they do to you that screws you kids up so much in four <laughs> years. Well, one thing you do is just puff a head full of knowledge but no common sense. So he said, you guys, and it's going to be really difficult to you because you're going to want to fight and argue. I know. I speak firsthand. I, I could be exhibit A in this conversation. And he said, I want you to settle down, and I want you to listen. Now, here's, here's the, we have about 12 minutes. Let me see if I can tie this together. Young men, likewise, be subject to your elders. So, elders, I want you to lead. Here's how I want you to lead with the right reason, in a gentle way, a kind way, an understanding way. Those of you in the congregation, especially young guys, but all of you, I want you to submit, to line up under. But all of you, elders, congregation, every person, all of you, clothe yourself with humility. The word clothe there is to tie something onto yourself, like an apron. Wrap yourself in humility. And here's why. God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. God's not neutral in this process. It's not God saying, oh, I understand, these are kind of, this, this pride's an issue. He said, no, no, God's opposed to this. I, I, I want to spend the rest of the time on it, and, and in a way, it feels like kind of an appropriate ending to, to speaking with you. I'm convinced that the key ingredient to, to, the, to the Christian life that sets up everything else is this idea of humility. And in a sense, love, and love springs from that. This whole idea of any relationship, elder congregation, husband, wife, two friends, people, society. I mean, the culture, the country's falling apart. The country's torn apart. And it's not economics or politics. We've lost all sense of civility, all sense of the capacity to live with one another. And at the core of this becomes humility. C.J. Mahaney wrote a book with that title, Humility. And in the foreword, he writes this, Humility is a funny thing. On one hand, it's an extremely desirable trait. Most of us as Christians would say we want to be humble, right? Or at least we'd say we want to be thought of as humble. At some time, at the same time, few of us have given attention to what being humble actually means. Even fewer have considered what it takes to grow in humility. In place of true humility, we learn certain words or phrases that we believe makes us sound humble. Oh, really? It was nothing. Or anyone could have done it. We cast our eyes down, shrug our shoulders, maybe even blush. Of course, we don't really mean it. Inside, we're congratulating ourselves for how humble we look and feel. We want that reputation but we don't know how to get it in reality. 
Humility, Webster, is a state of being humble. That's not helpful. Humble is not proud or haughty or arrogant or assertive. It's, it's reflecting, expressing, or offering something in a spirit of deference or submission. Humility is one of those really difficult things because even as I strive for it, if I begin to measure it, I almost inadvertently, you know the end of this, become proud of how humble I am. So I can be driving around town in this magnificent car. I bought the car for one reason, not because it gets me from point A to point B. But, but so you'll look at it and you'll have some, you'll look at that car and say, that car's a reflection of that person. And you're very proud of the car you drive. But there are a bunch of people driving around old junkers who are equally proud of how humble they are by driving around that old junker. It's just, the, the, the heart is a deceptively wicked thing. So A.W. Tozer says, whether it's self-aggrandizement or self-deprecation, either one is bad because we're still talking about self. Thus, the definition of humility that, that I've used for the last few years, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's simply thinking of yourself less. Now, sometimes it's helpful. See, a light went on right with that definition. Um, it, it, Sometimes it's helpful even to look at the negative. Well, the enemy of humility is pride. John Stott writes exactly that. At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy, humility our greatest friend. Pride not only appears to be the earliest of sin, it's the core of all sin. Pride, Stott writes, is more than just the first of the seven deadly sins. It's the essence of all sin. In Isaiah chapter 14, we're told about how Lucifer became the devil. Here's what we're told. He began to say in his heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I will. And pride begins to drive it all. And, and God is decisively resistant to the proud and drawn to the humble. Isaiah 66 verse 2 these words from the Lord. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. There's the little book that was in your book packet. By, by the way, 20% off everything in the bookstore today. Forgot to announce that. Now, a little book packet you got last week on, on this whole idea of self-forgetfulness. In it, Keller, Tim Keller, writes about the thinking of the Apostle Paul. We'll just kind of close with this. His ego is not puffed up, it's filled up. He's talking about humility, although I hate using the word humility because this is nothing like our idea of humility. Paul is saying that he's reached a place where his ego draws no more attention to itself than any other part of his body. He's reached a place where he's not thinking about himself anymore. When he does something wrong or good, he does not connect it with himself anymore. C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility, real humility, at the end of his chapter on pride. He says this, if we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from that meeting thinking they were humble. 
they would not always be telling us that they were nobody. Because a person who keeps saying they're nobody is actually self-obsessed. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humbled person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, but thinking of myself less. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. It's ingrained in us. I've told you this story a thousand times, how I would come home from a trip and I'd give something to Sarah and Haley would say, what about me? Or I'd give it to Haley and, and Sarah would say, what about me? And we spend our whole life naturally flinching in our ego. What about me? And humility comes along and says, listen, it's not all about you. Let me read a little more from Keller. A truly gospel-humbled person is not self-hating or self-loving, but a gospel-humbled person, the truly gospel-humbled uh, person is a self-forgetful person whose ego is just like his or hers toes. It just works. It doesn't draw attention to itself. Its toes just work. Its ego just works. Neither draw attention to themselves. And put a bow on it. Still from... Keller, because God loves me and accepts me, I do not have to do things to build my resume. I don't have to do things to make me look good. I can do things for the joy of doing them. I can help people to help people, not so I can feel better about myself and not so I can be filled with emptiness. Well, all of a sudden, I'm not worried about me. That's not the driving force. What about me? But it's what about you? And now you take it and you just take that and you put it in every relationship and every relationship works. Sandy and I have been married six and a half, almost, almost seven months. And, uh, and, and so on one side I look and that's, that's, that's a long time. You know, if you have, a, if you have a, a sore tooth, seven months to have a sore tooth is a long time. Okay? If you're trying to, to, to get through college, seven months not very long. But in a marriage for me, it kind of feels like a long time. And, and, I, and I'm constantly trying to evaluate and reevaluate and saying, how am I doing in this? God taught me a lot in 32 years, and I have a chance to, 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 to in a sense, start over again. And, and there's a refreshment in that, but, but how am I doing, and, and, and what am I doing, and, and, and when does it seem to work best, and when does it not work? And I can tell you, this is so easy. It works best. When I'm in my best relationship with Christ and when I'm concerned about what, what Sandy needs, not about what Tom needs. And what will allow me to help her be the best person God could ever be. And then conversely, if she were to somehow be in the other room with the same idea, substitute my name for hers, how can this thing not be great? In any friendship, in any business, we're getting ready, and you should be praying when we talk about elders. We're getting ready tomorrow, Monday and Tuesday. We're on a retreat all day with the leadership team of redemption. So there'll be seven or eight of us locked away and kind of reexamining now redemption and what we're doing. And I can tell you what we'll have, we're going to have tension in that discussion. 
that just will be because we have, we have six campuses represented and what about this and what about that? But the key to redemption to work, like any other relationship, is for us to go, but this isn't about me. It's not about Gilbert or it's not about West Mesa or Arcadia. It's about redemption and what we think God's called us to do. Let me take you to, to one passage of Scripture, then we're done. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and you wily veterans know that that's the love chapter. And I want to do something that I've done probably six times in the last year, so maybe it's fitting to do this on my last Sunday with you, is to go to this idea and the concept of love as Paul defines it. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4, love is patient, it's kind, doesn't, it's not jealous, it doesn't brag, it's not arrogant, doesn't act unbecomingly. In my Bible, this next phrase is circled, probably the key to it all. It does not seek its own. That's what love is. It's not provoked. It doesn't, it doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It's not keeping score. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoice in truth. Verse 7. I just want to read you to, as I say, I've probably done this six times in the last year. And it's, it's like, and, I, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not getting this, this connected and clear as it's coming out as it is in my mind. Is God's connecting this idea of humility and love and the essence of every relationship. What's going to make the church work, the family work, the business work, the culture work, the society work, the gym work, the homeowners association work. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How should you be in your relationship with one another? You should bear all things. Bear all things basically means to cover, to support, to protect. Love bears all things by protecting others from exposure or ridicule or harm. Genuine love does not gossip or listen to gossip. Even when sin is certain, love tries to correct it with the least possible hurt and harm to the guilty person. Love never protects sin but is anxious to protect the sinner. Imagine a relationship where instead of trying to expose somebody in their weakness, begin to talk to your friends. Well, you know so-and-so. And that's just the most natural thing in the world. It's, I, you find it. Here you go. Here's a friend. And you know something about him. You know it's not particular. It's generally known, but maybe not known by everyone. And somebody you meet has just met this person for the first time, and they can't wait to tell you how great this guy is. He's the most terrific guy. He's awesome. Here's what he said. This will make it even worse. And what he said was something brilliant, but all he's doing is repeating you. How come your natural flinches to say, let me tell you something else about him? Well, because you don't love him. And because you're not acting in a, in a spirit of humility. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love is not suspicious or cynical. It throws a mantle over a wrong. It also believes the best outcome for the one who's done the wrong. Believes that that wrong will be confessed and forgiven and the Lord will restore. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. Even when belief in, in a loved one's goodness or repentance is shattered, love still hopes. When it runs out of faith, it holds on to hope. As long as God's grace is operative, human failure is never final. God would not take Israel's failure as final. Jesus would not take Peter's failure as final. 
Paul would not take the Corinthians' failure as final. There are more than enough promises in the Bible to make love hopeful. It bears all things, believes all things, it hopes for all things, it endures all things. It's a military term that speaks of holding an army's vital position at all costs. Every hardship, every suffer that's endured in this process. Love holds fast to those it loves. It endures all things at all costs. It stands against overwhelming opposition and refuses to stop bearing or stop believing or stop hoping. Love will not stop loving. That's what he calls us to do. Again, in the context of our lesson, it's elders and congregation, but it's ultimately all of us in every relationship. So if you're, if you're in relationships now, and, and this part is shattered here, and this part is shattered here, and this part is shattered here, my suspicion would be in the midst of this, somehow you're overly either exercising your rights or concerned about the violation of them. That'd be my guess. And then you begin to see as you're honestly, just, just see how this infiltrates every aspect of our life. Kids are getting ready to go to college. Some of you are getting ready to take hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt to go to a certain school, not even for the education, just so it'll look good on a resume. Or at the Christmas party, you can say, Biff is at Brown. And it sounds good. Why do you drive what you drive? Wear what you wear? Live where you are? Why is it important to redo this? How much of it is concerned about your image, which is pride, which is the utmost evil and a complete anti-God state of mind? Well, the only way you're going to get there, and there's only one way, is to understand my sin and the need of a Savior and what Christ did on the cross. If you're over in the conference center, the guys are going to come and close that service here. Neil's on his way up to lead us in this time of communion. Let's pray as he does. Father, let us have a, a mind in us that was also in Christ Jesus. And that mind was one of humility, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God, uh, allow us to think this way, see people this way, and, and watch our relationships blossom as you are in the middle of that. God, God, our heart and our minds, draw us close to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.